The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So how is that practicing without without my guiding hand? Was everyone okay? Any questions or practice uh, thoughts tonight? Well, good. Let's take a little stretch break. to be here again. Um, and uh, tonight I'm going to try to address uh, steps 11 and 12. Step 11 is the longest of the 12 steps, I believe. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And I, I think this is, uh, well, I'll say first of all that it was really this step that made me think that I was going to be able to maybe do the 12 steps when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, which is where I got sober and and uh, felt sort of alienated by a lot of the steps, but when I saw step 11, it had the word meditation, and that was something I was familiar with. So, um, And, of course, it's um, kind of the reason why I do what I do, why there is my book and all of that, um, the uh, most obvious connection between Buddhism and the 12 steps. Um, I think... Uh, the concept of conscious contact is, um, for me, it's a little problematic, mainly because uh, it um, focuses on a particular aspect of our relationship with our higher power, with God. And that is the, uh, the experience of God, or the sense of... Um, the presence of God, we're feeling God, and and I, have, you know, often heard people say things like, you know, I'm not feeling very close to my higher power, or just the opposite, I feel, I'm feeling close to my higher power, and um, that's nice when you're feeling close, and it's not pleasant when you're not feeling close, but uh, if you've if you heard me talking about my ideas of, of what higher power really means from the viewpoint of Buddhism, I don't think it matters so much how you feel, uh, you know, whether you feel God or not. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's as I say, that's, that's nice and, and everything and probably helpful and, and maybe is indicative of a certain kind of um, 
you know, peace or mindfulness or concentration or sort of some of the meditative qualities that get developed. But, but in terms of um, how we live and um, how we kind of live through the Dharma, I think that our awareness of suffering, of impermanence, our awareness or, and our um, living the precepts, um, fulfilling uh, right livelihood, right speech, all of these which are also powers and, and, uh, and very powerful uh, aspects of the Dharma um, are certainly as important as our contact, our sense of God, that more mystical state, uh, we'll say. And, and according to Stephen Batchelor, uh, who's a great Buddhist teacher and scholar, he says quite flatly that the Buddha wasn't a mystic. So the Buddha wasn't seeking some transcendent experience uh, or, to, or to have union with God. The Buddha was seeking the end of suffering. And certainly having a sense of higher power or God or contact, and I would just call it contact with the present. Because God is, can only be present. So having that sense of presence and contact with that is certainly a moment, very often, of, of release from suffering. But um, again, I just feel that, that that's a setup a little bit for, you know, oh, I'm, I'm feeling contact, I'm not feeling contact. And, and that, that, that confuses us about how uh, spiritual we're being. In a, a typical, a more, another example of this is when uh, I, I talk about this woman in my book, book, who was a Buddhist practitioner, and uh, we were in a little group together, and she, and she was in school to become a nurse, and she was a single mother, and she was talking about how uh, frustrating it was, how she didn't feel very connected with her practice, because she wasn't able to go on retreats. And this is very common for single parents, and other parents, and all kinds of people. Uh, and I, you know, and I just kind of reflected back to her, but you know, you're, you know, that aspect of the practice might not be strong right now, but you're working on right livelihood, which is so important, developing that to be a nurse. You know, what could be more wise? And you're expressing your loving kindness by being a mother and caring for this child. And, uh, just so, because on top of not feeling connected, it's unfortunate when we add this extra judgment that that, that means something negative about my overall spiritual condition. Uh, you know, it means something about your spiritual condition, but it's, uh, I, I'm, you know, very much in favor of looking for the things that are working in our spiritual life and, and uh, honoring those and uh, taking pleasure in those, taking happiness in those. Um, that, uh, that just uh, was what 
occurred to me when I looked at the step tonight. Um, but I do want to kind of go through uh, step 11 a little bit piece by piece as well. Um, just the, the initial word we sought through prayer and meditation that I think is a, a really important word. Like, uh, as I've said with some of the other steps, because it's, there's a dynamic quality to seeking. Sought is the past tense of seek. Uh, that's, an, I guess, an irregular verb. Uh, so it's not seeked. Um, and that, that seeking, uh, that dynamic quality, is, is part of us keeping our practice alive and keeping our program alive. It's, uh, again, not that we arrive somewhere or that we complete a process, uh, that we're enlightened or we're spiritually awakened and then we're done, we're sober and then we're done. But, but this uh, lifetime journey, which uh, for me is, I'm grateful for that. Because uh, how disappointing would it be to think, well, I'm done now. There's nothing to do in my spiritual life. I'm, I'm not going to go on any more retreats. I'm not going to go to any Gil's, Gil's classes or read any more Dharma books because I'm done. So now what will I do? I've been wanting to take up golf. So that would be good. You know, spiritual retirement. You know. Uh, I mean, anybody who has to face death, uh, you know, better not retire <laughs> spiritually as far as I'm concerned because you, your biggest challenge is always ahead of you. Uh, so that's seeking. I think it's very important, just as with the steps, to keep this idea of a lifetime's journey and, and really from a joyful standpoint. Um, Certainly, uh, every retreat I've ever been on is new, and I have, you know, unique experiences each time I I uh, go into that process and that work. Um, and even though at times, of course, it becomes tedious your day-to-day meditation practice or your daily, you know, your twelve-step group. If we stay ready, there's always something, uh, well, I won't say always, but there's, you know, in a regular basis, there's, there's something to engage us in and to challenge us. Uh, and, I mean, life itself, of course, is so full of challenges. Uh, um, okay, I got through thought. <laughs> I'll skip through. <laughs> and just go right to prayer, jump right ahead to prayer. So let me talk a little bit about prayer, which um, uh, people will, uh, from time to time, ask me if there is such a thing in, as prayer in Buddhism. And, uh, and I certainly think that the loving-kindness practice that we did last week, forgiveness practices, all of those types of practices are prayers. Uh, we don't characterize them as that. I, I, uh, most most uh, Buddhist teachers probably don't. But I don't see how you can... Uh, they, they are also meditations, but they are prayers, it seems to me. When I say, may I be happy, may you be happy, it's very much the same as just saying, um, God, help me to be happy. Uh, it's just a different 
language and orientation. Um, and, and so, uh, then, then what is prayer? I, I, um, there's a couple ways that I like to think about prayer. I think that um, prayer is a reminder to ourselves in this formal, trust, trustworthy language of our right intention. Um, so when I say the serenity prayer, uh, you know, may I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's not so much that I'm uh, asking for something, but it's rather that I'm reminding myself, oh, you know, am I trying to do something? Am I trying to um, accomplish something that's really not possible for me to do? Am I, am I pushing against some uh, immovable object? Or am I evading some responsibility? Is there something I can do here? And, and so it's just really a reminder, oh, I don't want to suffer uh, by not accepting what I can't do. Um, and that sort of seems to be sort of the prime element of the serenity prayer, uh, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Um, may I be happy, may you be happy, um, is talking to my heart. And again, coming into my deepest wish for myself and for others. When I am disturbed or uh, upset, to be able to remind myself that really what I want is happiness for myself and for others, despite all the turmoil of life, and, you know, when you're angry, when you're, when you're uh, in some uh, complex life situation, to just make it very simple to come back to that. So prayer is too about the heart, getting us out of our head and into our heart. And, and I think there's something about uh, using ritualistic language, which is kind of like the security blanket. It's like, oh, I know these words, yeah. And sometimes you just say them to yourself over and over, you know, when you're really in grief or you're in, in some struggle, that you just say the words over and over, even when you can't feel them and you can't connect them. It's just like kind of sucking your thumb, spiritual thumb sucking. Um, calms you down. You know, and as to whether prayer can do something or not in the material world, uh, you know, that seems to be one of those questions that, uh, in some ways, it seems to define, how people answer that seems to define something about people. Um, what side they fall on with that. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I take a very... Uh, materialist approach to spirituality um, uh, that you know comes out of my own conditioning and uh, and and so um, you know the place that I go to with that because I 
I, I take a materialist view and I keep, I try to keep the open mind of the scientist, you know, that we really don't know. So, so my essential answer is I don't know. Um, and, and I think that there's certainly the possibility that there is some kind of, uh, inter, I mean, you know, interaction between the p- pure consciousness and the material world. In fact, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, a spiritual principle. Um, and how that might work. I mean, for just uh, how it might work from, you know, you could put it in kind of uh, the, something that the Buddha talked about was the power of concentration. So the Buddha uh, said that concentration was one of the, I believe it's four uh, imponderables, how with the power of a concentrated mind. And um, so he, he sort of said, you, you can't even know how powerful it is, which doesn't exactly tell us how powerful, it doesn't tell us maybe it's you know, what can do, but it, but it certainly implies that there's tremendous power and there are stories in the uh, in the Pali canon of uh, when he talks about the um, uh, abilities the psychic abilities of the fully enlightened being and all that's great you know I'm always looking for the danger (laughs) the places that people stumble and and the and this is one of the risks with prayer that we become attached to or uh, you know think that we're going to change things by praying or by meditating we're going to fix things and and so uh, I think it's uh, uh, we have to be careful uh, you know I, I actually gave a talk on this last retreat about about how do we change asking that question how do we change and and I think that, that one of the pl- places that we can go with prayer and with meditation is making these kind of magical connections and and tr- you know for instance I had one acquaintance who was going through a hard time and was unemployed and said well I'm going to go on a retreat because uh, I know that's that way I'll get a job and I thought you know what? Where's the cause and effect here? You know, I understand the kind of feeling that you know my life's in chaos, and I really just want to get some peace. And maybe out of that, things will become more clear. And you know, and that you know, and that's and I that's certainly true. But there was also a little bit of magical thinking, like if I'm really good and spiritual, it's kind of like you know, if I'm a good little little child, boy or girl, that then God will reward me with a job. You know? And that's very much the way I thought before I got sober and very much the way I lived. Just magical thinking through and through. You know, uh, somehow, you know, I'm going to go on a meditation retreat and like after the retreat, uh, the record company is going to be at, the do- at my door because you know? they're just going to feel my vibration or something. You know? And know that I should be a rock and roll star. I mean, that was kind of my kind of delusion, and and um, so I think it's really important. It's it's really important to me to try to stay in touch with cause and effect, how that might work. And and the truth is, I don't know all the mechanics of cause and effect, you know. But I have to 
just be very careful of my own tendency. And, and each of us has to see what are our tendencies, you know, because uh, you might be the opposite extreme. Uh, but my own tendencies are to kind of, you know, hope a lot, you know, put in a lot of hope, but not a lot of the work to accomplish things. You know, and the same applies when we move on with to the, in the step one, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us. Um, that is, it applies in that we have to be careful what we think God is saying to us. <coughs> Obviously, a lot of people, including our most recent past president, have gotten us in trouble based on their beliefs about what God was saying to them. Um, I, uh, one of the probably uh, worst parts of my new book, I think, is a part I've written about the will of God. Um, talking about how, uh, how these higher powers that I describe, these aspects of the Dharma, might, how we might see what their will is. Uh, I'll attempt to uh, explain some of it because I was thinking about reading it, but I read it this afternoon and I was like, oh, God. Unfortunately, it's way in the back of the book, so most people will never get to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many spiritual books do you actually read from start to finish? It's not like a novel where you want to find out what happens at the end, you know. Uh, but. Um, for instance, if we talk about karma as having a will, well, we would, go, we would go then to something like the precepts and say, well, there's kind of the will of karma is for us to live in accordance with the precepts. One, one of the aspects of the will of karma, right? Um, and, you know, the will of suffering is that we respond to our suffering in a skillful way so that we uh, change in a way that will relieve suffering. Um, the will of mindfulness is that we bring our, our attention into the present moment. So, uh, um, so in this way, the higher powers that I talk about, uh, it's always kind of clear what the, their will is. It's not like, uh, so they're not going to help us so much in decision making. Um, there was, I did write something about that in this, I just remembered. <laughs> I have a hard time remembering what I write after I write it. Um, I don't know if it's in this chapter. Yeah. Oh, clear comprehension. So, uh, this is sort of an interesting piece. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll read some of this. Um, uh, so, this talks about clear comprehension, which is um, one of the two main components of uh, mindfulness. Bear attention, which is just the attention to what's happening in this moment, and then clear comprehension, which I'll sort of explain here. Clear comprehension, in the general sense, is the aspect of mindfulness that looks at the broader context of our moment-to-moment situation. While bare attention might help us to be very attentive to walking, just feeling our feet and legs moving down the sidewalk, Clear comprehension notices that we have come to an intersection and need to look both ways so we don't get run over. Specifically, clear comprehension has four components 
And they are expressly designed to help us make decisions to know what, quote, God's will is in any situation. The four components of clear comprehension are to question my purpose. Why do I want or not want to do or say this? Is my intention to help others or to further my own self-centered wants? If I can see that, at least to some extent, my motives are good, I go on to the next question. Question my means. Do I actually have the personal ability as well as any material things I might need to accomplish what I'm thinking about? If my motives are positive, sorry. If my motives are positive and I see that I probably have what I need to get it done, then I can go to the next question. Question my alignment with the teachings. Is what I want to do or say in accord with the precepts, with loving kindness and compassion? Will it lead to less suffering? If I've answered all these questions positively, these first three questions, then there's a good chance things will work out and I take the leap. Question the results. After we've done or said something, we look back at how it worked out. What can we learn? If the results were good, it's helpful to see how we got there. So maybe we can do or say something like that again. If the results aren't so good, what went wrong? What part of the first three stages did we foul up on? I'll read a little more. There are a couple things that are apparent about clear comprehension. First of all, it takes time to ask these four questions. In that time, hopefully, passions are cooled and rash acts and words are avoided. So taking time, whether it's five seconds or five months, whatever is needed, really helps us to make skillful decisions. Second, and more important, is how carefully we must examine ourselves and the teachings before we can successfully follow these steps. Just the first question, what are my motives, takes a great deal of contemplation. As we practice meditation for some time, we see more and more clearly the layers of deception, of self-justification, of craving upon craving, and finally come to know that virtually all motives are mixed. Perfect motivation, or right intention, is beyond the reach of most of us. Instead of expecting perfection, we try to achieve some reasonable level of right intention. If we didn't allow ourselves to act or speak until we'd achieved perfectly pure motivation, we would wind up passive and mute for the rest of our lives. When I question my means, I'm really saying, am I ready to do or say this? So often we get ahead of ourselves, wanting to be someone we aren't, wanting to skip the steps involved in achieving our goals. One night, after I gave a Dharma talk to a large group, someone approached me and said, I want to be a meditation teacher. What do I have to do? I was taken aback. It was as though the person wanted to know what graduate studies program they could sign up for to get a certificate. The real answer might be, if you want to be a meditation teacher, you already have the wrong motivation. A more skillful goal is to practice deeply to develop wisdom and compassion for all beings. If you are meant to teach, it will arise out of your own practice. I am trying to learn to apply this teaching to my communication with my wife. Do I want to go here? Well, (laughs) I've opened the door. When I ask myself, do I have the ability to say this to her kindly, usually something critical, of course, the answer is often no. When I decide not to speak, I usually get into much less trouble than when I decide to speak. Working with the third question, my alignment with the teachings, is first of all a great motivator to study the teachings, because after all, if I don't know what they are, how can I know if I'm in line with them? Well, it goes on and on, but I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> 
So, you know, as I kind of uh, imply in there, uh, I think making decisions or knowing God's will, uh, a lot of it is waiting. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, some of the advice that I give others as well as myself about decision making, uh, or one of the first questions I ask is, do you have to make that decision now? Because you will always have more information the longer you wait. And some things just solve, some problems just solve themselves when we don't try to solve them ourselves. Um. Ah, so, uh, and the power to carry that out. You know, power is a uh, is a tricky word in the steps, and it's interesting that here, in step eleven, it it suggests that we should have power, and and I think that's a really a good thing because uh, the concept of powerlessness gets um, to some degree uh, over overemphasized in the in programs. Um, People seem to think that they have no power and that maybe it's best that they don't have any power because they, you know, they can't trust themselves with it or that it's all about ego. And, and um, you know, and it's clearly if we want to be uh, effective people, if we want to be of service, um, we need some power. And, uh, and so... Uh, that uh, that's an important part of our path, and and indeed, um, knowing how to uh, handle power is very important. I, you know, the the role that I that I play as a teacher is one of power, and and there's a tremendous sense of responsibility one has in it, um, much like the responsibility of a sponsor. Um, and it's it's easy to abuse powers like that. And, and, you know, where that power comes from, the power to be a sponsor or a teacher or any kind of a guide is, is out of our own um, experience, largely. I was corresponding with someone I was in Portland over the weekend, and, and I guess I quoted a couple of books, and someone asked me what those books were that I had quoted, and then he wrote to me about some other quote that, where, I can't find that book, and I was like, well, it's out of print, and... and he seemed very anxious to get these books as though um, if he could just read the books that I had read, then he would have that I have. You know, and, I, and I kind of wrote back and said, you know, I'm not sure what you're after, but, uh, you know, m- the way I use books is, uh, books only mean something to me after I've had an experience. And they're only useful in my teaching after I've had an experience. And a lot of times, uh, I remember reading a lot of Dharma books early in my practice and sort of in, uh, understanding them intellectually, but 
uh, only later, after I'd been through a lot of sitting practice, uh, did I read the books and go, oh, that's what happened. And so a lot of times what books do for me is they reveal, they clarify what I've been through that I didn't really understand when I went through it. Uh, and, th- and then when I put that, that experience together with that clarification, then I start to be able to have something that I can share, that, that I can understand and that I can also have some reference point or context for. Um, so it's, you know, our, in, in the Buddhist tradition and really in 12 Steps as well, our power comes through our letting go. You know, and, and it comes through our letting go of attachment to self. It comes through our letting go of attachment to results. Uh, it comes through our letting go of trying to control the world and control others. Uh, and this is the opposite of how worldly power is acquired. Worldly qui- power is acquired through grasping, through getting, through accumulating. And so we have to be careful that we aren't trying to accumulate spiritual power. Um, And also that we're not abusing spiritual power. So that seems like more than enough about step 11. And and I I, want to leave time for questions, but... um, let me talk a little more about step 12 first. Um, and I'm not going to say too much more because I've kind of talked a lot already. Um, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, etc., and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I think that's all it says. Sometimes pulling them out of context, I drop a word or two. Yes. So, um, you know, the first thing that's striking about this, the, the uh, step is that it says that through doing the steps we have a spiritual awakening. And that, as someone who was kind of steeped in Buddhism before I got sober, um, that kind of surprised me because I think of a spiritual awakening or I thought of a spiritual awakening as being enlightenment, which was this magical experience that I didn't understand, but I knew that it was like very advanced and only was going to come after years of, you know, meditating in a cave in the Himalayas. Um, but but uh, here it says just doing these steps will have a spiritual awakening and and my understanding of that today is that in fact each of the steps is a spiritual awakening. That it's not even a cumulative experience, but that in fact taking step one in a, in a wholehearted way is a transformative insight. That when the desire to drink is lifted, as it has been for many many of us, and the desire to do, use your drug of choice, uh, to abuse your drug of choice, if your drug of choice might be food or sex, things that we might continue to use in a healthy way. If that's, that desire has been moved, removed, that is a transformative insight. Uh, this is 
a definition that nobody's, I don't have any backing for this. So this is my, uh, my thoughts about that insight is when we understand something and it touches us and moves us, but doesn't necessarily change us in a way that changes our behavior or, uh, or our re- uh, emotional reactivity. And that a trans- but that a transformative insight is when we have that experience, but out of it comes a change in behavior and emotional and mental reactivity. That the mind and heart and body, indeed, are actually changed. And that, that's what happened to me with sobriety. I had a transformative insight that the desire to drink and use was lifted. Um, and that is a spiritual awakening, as far as I'm concerned. And you don't have to go anywhere beyond that to, to say that that's, that's a huge change. But we could say each of the steps has some kind of awakening. Step two, we could say, is awakening to faith or possibility, realizing that there's a possibility of freedom. Step three is an awakening to um, the surrender of, of giving up self-centeredness. Step four, awakening to honesty, to truth, and on. And on we can see that each of the steps has some kind of a spiritual awakening. Um, And, and so spiritual awakening can happen on different levels, you know. It can happen just in that, in that way that uh, something changes within us. And then in Buddhism there are very formal ways that enlightenment is described. As in the Theravada school there are four stages of enlightenment. Each of, them, each of them is an experience of touching nirvana, whatever that is. And, um, you know, having this profound experience that is transforming and and each one and then the at the fourth stage of enlightenment there's this final transformation in which there's really no longer clinging uh clinging to self or clinging to uh experience so that uh so that you're you're not recreating yourself and in the traditional teaching it says that you aren't you aren't reborn anymore you don't you you don't get reincarnation anymore, which is what the Buddha was actually after, which they don't tell you at, you know, Buddhism 101 school, because, um, you know, the idea of reincarnation, like the idea of heaven, is appealing to people who realize that these bodies are mortal. Well, at least I'll come back again, right? And, but the Buddha said, you know, this just, it's not that great. <laughs> I know you find some pleasure in it, but if you look really closely, you know, it's just like one thing after another. It's not satisfying, it's painful. And then at the end, you die. And that's never pleasant, I'm telling you. you know, and he actually you know, is said to have had this psychic power that he could go back and see all his past lives. And he just saw how each one was like, one thing after another. And so his determination was to end rebirth. So in case you're, you know, committing yourself to being a Buddhist, know that this is what you're signing up for. (laughs) But, you know, is that true? I mean, I, I really, it's hard for me to not believe things the Buddha said 
but I don't fully believe that, you know, the truth is. So, uh, I, but, you know, I definitely honor it and I don't not believe it. Um, so that's like, you know, enlightenment, enlightenment. You know. But, uh, but the beautiful thing is that there's enlightenment here, right now, this experience. And that's, you know, another approach to enlightenment is when you are present, when you are here, when you are just not clinging to anything, that's a moment of awakening. That's a moment of enlightenment. And that's something we can all, you know, that's not some lofty experience that requires some uh, incredible devotion and commitment. It's something that we can have right here and taste right here. And, and what I love about this step and what I think is most inspiring about this step is that having had a spiritual awakening, what did we do? You know, we didn't, you know, retire. We didn't, you know, kick back. I mean, the, you know, the story of the Buddha after his enlightenment was he sat there and thought, well, nobody's going to get this. And then he realized, well, maybe some people will. And he set out to help people. And he spent the rest of his life every day trying to find somebody who could hear his message and could wake up. So the message is that spiritual awakening is not for you. In fact, since there really isn't a you that can be satisfied, that wouldn't work anyway. So this, this, uh, this freedom that comes through this path is is not uh, a selfish thing. And that in itself is a great relief. You know, I, last month, well, no, now it's in April, now it's, we're in June, but in April I went to the Solano State Prison. I was invited to come uh, and teach mindfulness and just to teach what I teach and the steps to um, a group of prisoners who are studying to be drug and alcohol counselors. They're all in recovery. Um, well, some of them actually, maybe a few of them are not actually in recovery. Some of them are lifers, you know. They're in prison with no plans to, you know, get out. Uh, but they've had a spiritual awakening, each and every one of them. And that spiritual awakening made clear to them that what they could do with their life was to try to help other prisoners. And some of them will get out and be able to perhaps get jobs as drug and alcohol counselors. But I just was so touched and so inspired by their presence that they would do that. I mean, you know, this is a place where it's easy to get into self-pity and anger and resentment, you know, prison. To get into depression and despair. And these guys are saying, no, I'm not going to succumb to that. I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to make something of this life that's worth, worthwhile. That, that, to me, was a great, um, you know, inspiration for my own practice, my own path. It's in there somewhere. It's all right. It's like one of those bags, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> there's some movie like that, I don't know if it's Harry Potter or something. It's going to stop ringing at some point, after all. Maybe they'll call back. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I, you know, uh, 
I was trying to find this reference today uh, in Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, which I read you know, 12 or 13 years ago. Um, and one of the things that struck me in it uh, was he was talking about depression and he's talking about all the you know, ways of healing depression. And somewhere in there, he says sort of offhandedly, well, it's been shown that doing service is a great way to get out of depression, but very few people do it. Yeah. And it just really, oh. But there, there it is in the steps. It's built into the 12 steps. One of the great things about the steps is if you just do them, you know, you don't have to know how they work. They work, right? Keep coming back. It works if you work it, you know. Um, you don't have to understand them for them to have their effect. Uh, so, so this is a, a great guide. And of course, you know, again, to bring it back to Buddhism, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the bodhisattva ideal, which is that we are practicing for the awakening of all beings, not for our own freedom, uh, which is, you know, expressed in many very practical activities, organizations like the Buddhist Peace Fellowship that are devoted to engage, engaging the world and trying to bring Buddhist principles into the world. Um, So clearly this is a this is a spiritual teaching that's that reaches across traditions. And fi- finally the step says and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I love that that kind of it's like the small print at the bottom, you know, in, in case we didn't cover something, just do it all the time, you know. Uh, so um there's no out clause. And um, and this is, of course, the same teaching on mindfulness, practicing mindfulness as a way of life. Not that you do a little meditation in the morning and a little in the evening and then you've done your thing. You go to church on Sunday or you come to the meditation group on Tuesday. No, I mean, this is, a, this is to, meant to permeate your life, to, to be in all your affairs. And, and, and that was what really drew me to Buddhism. I, um, and when I first started meditation, I was doing a practice where they just said, just meditate 20 minutes twice a day, and, and then you will come to cosmic consciousness. And, and uh, you know, probably the fact that I was getting stoned in between wasn't helping, because uh, I can't blame the practice itself. But, but I always fe- I felt a longing for something more that would fill in the gaps in my life. And, it, and when I found Buddhism, and then I felt like it was talking to me, it was talking about my life, it wasn't just talking about a practice or a ritual or a prayer. It was really, you know, you look at the Eightfold Path and it's got everything from meditation to the right livelihood uh, and the precepts, and right speech. It seemed to, you know, be about life. Um, one of the... Uh, things I like to do is, is just contemplate what the, what the principles are. There's nowhere in the steps where it says, this is principle one, this is principle two, these are, you know, these are, the principles are implied and, and uh, I think it's, um, you know, a good practice to just, uh, for yourself, uh, maybe write down or just contemplate what you think the principles are of the 12 steps and of the recovery program. Um, so um, I'm going to stop there and, and open it up for questions since this will be our last meeting
have a little bit more time. Uh, questions? Thoughts? Comments? Any... Uh, and, uh, you know, also I'll say that since this is our last night, if there's anything that I, that you feel I didn't cover that you wish I had covered, not that I'm going to cover it, but that I'll know <laughs> for next time. I've been recently wondering where step, how Step 11 got into that 12-step story. It drew me to the program. When I first came into the program, I said, I want Step 11. I don't care about the other 12. Yeah. Give me 11. And now I've been coming to think it seemed like they, knowing that Bill still struggled with his story of depression and his you know, Wall Street success and so on. Yeah. I can see now why I call it the Vogue Rehab step, it seems, of the program. Hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, they had to put it in there someplace, and I guess they had to put it, I don't know if your thoughts have ever been on that in terms of um, finding your right livelihood because of the, the power of the <laughs> addiction keeping you from your right livelihood, yeah. right? I don't know. Thought maybe maybe you should go after like step seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't belong where it is. Well, it belongs to step eleven. Has a wrong number. Uh huh. Well, I think they were trying to. I didn't. I think they didn't want to scare people, or something. That you know. I think a lot. They that. I mean, I'm just wondering in 1939 what meditation. Meant, you know, according to the 12 and 12, they're really talking about contemplation. You know, because they talk about the St. Francis prayer, and, and the St. Francis prayer is a beautiful contemplation, but it's not what we in Buddhism call meditation. Um, and indeed, I think, uh, I th- for me, doing an inventory really meditation really enhances that. But meditation for me works with all the steps. You could put it first because I see my powerlessness when I sit down to meditate. You know, uh, I connect with that and it helps me to surrender to my powerlessness. Oh, right, here's this and this. Um, And it helps me to turn it over because when I can kind of, I can drop it, you know, I can let go. And that's step six and seven as well. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, I, th- I think they're they're seeing it as more uh, a maintenance, maintaining our recovery, uh, than they are as the uh, first time through the steps. Um, I was reading um, the big book about step eleven today. Um, And it's in the into action step at the end. So maybe we can find some answer to your question here. It's interesting that even before they introduce step 11, they're talking about getting inspiration and direction from God. Um, We shouldn't be shy about this matter. You know, yeah, it's much more about kind of maintenance because they, you know, they start talking about when we retire at night, we should constructively review our day. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. Um, Usually conclude meditation with the prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. 
you know, when I first started to teach this stuff, I was wondering about taking it to, to treatment centers and what, whether people were going to be able to meditate at all when they were in their first week, you know. And, and there, you know, and I've encountered some skepticism with that. But I have to say that I've been surprised at how effective it is. Um, that, that people, as long as they're not actually in detox, actively detoxing, can, that they immediately benefit from it. And of course, when I teach in a treatment center, the meditation period is short and it's very much guided um, and there's a lot of time for questions. And I, and I lay a, a foundation for why they would want to do this and everything. But, but it's quite amazing that, uh, you know, to me, a lot of the power of meditation is the power that comes from closing your eyes and sitting still. Nothing else, you know, and, and uh, with that, if you, then somebody says stuff so that you think you're doing something or you think you're meditating, but a lot of it's just like, oh, just sit down and shut up and, you know, <laughs> just relax for a little while, you know. And it's so hard for us to do, and particularly when you've been on a run and you're tossed into the treatment center. But I don't, I don't know about where it belongs in the steps. I'm, I'm satisfied with 11. <laughs> I'm just glad it's there as you, you know. uh, I had a, a question and a comment um, uh, when you were talking about the each step being a spiritual awakening and you were kind of talking about uh, what what awakening you associated with the various steps what did you say the awakening that you associate with three was um, the kind of the surrender. Surrender. Of yeah. And you know, I'm just making that yeah. up. You know, no, I, think I, really. <laughs> that, I, I mean, I'm just trying to connect with what it feels like to me. And I, I right. think that, but uh, but I think I think it's a credible mm-hmm. claim. And I think, and I really put it out there more for for people to investigate for themselves what mm-hmm. they find in that. Yeah. Um, and then what I was going to say is um, when you were talking about. Um, using prayer to try and fix things, you know, magical thinking instead of looking at the cause and effect. And um, it just reminded me of the the feeling I had, especially when I got sober, but still sometimes now, um, that I deserve, you know, maybe even more than I'm getting because I'm I'm a sober person, I'm a good girl, I'm a, you know, gold star on my forehead. And... Mm -hmm. um, and that that's really you know related to magical thinking i suppose and and also some kind of sense of entitlement you know just one oh you just want to coast for a while i mean god you got sober you know yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so um anyway i just noticed that that still comes up sometimes you know yeah. can i get a break here you yeah. know it's like the the buddha looking back and wow well, you know it wasn't that easy you know, know. getting sober sorry so yeah. that's what I was thinking. Well, the, you know, it's interesting that somewhere in the suttas that actually does say, the Buddha actually says that nobody deserves happiness or love any more than you. But that also means nobody deserves it less than you. So, so, 
I'm for everybody getting it. Yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah. No, I mean, I'll share. So right. So it's really, but but I mean, he is trying to say like. You know, it's, it's, we could say that's about humility, right? It's not to be above and not to be below, to just realize. But, the, uh, but so, that, you know, when you're down, that's a good lesson. And when you're up, that's a good lesson too, you know. You don't deserve this more than anybody. You know, I, but, the, but the final thing that we, we come to is the first noble truth. That things are just of their nature unsatisfactory. Life is unsatisfactory of its, in its nature. There's, n- there's never something that you get or experience that is completely satisfying or that, that's enduringly satisfying. It's momentarily satisfying. But there's, you know, and that's just the nature, that's the truth of suffering. And, and uh, the, what, what makes that easier to live with is accepting it. You know, <laughs> when we really see that, and we don't struggle, because where the where the real pain comes is when we fight with that, and when we go, oh, I deserve more. You know, I should I should be happier. You know, why do I get? Why don't I can't I get a break? The problem isn't the lack of the break; it's the feeling that you deserve the break. You know, that's where the real struggle comes, and that's. That's where we can intervene. That's where we can have power. And that's where the power of mindfulness, the power of letting go, can, can uh, free us. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I also, I just was going to say that I'm glad you, you mentioned that nobody deserves happiness any less than we do. Because a lot of times people say that they don't deserve uh, sobriety, like they didn't yeah. really merit it. And that always strikes me as... Not, not right. You know, everyone yeah. deserves happiness, deserves a chance, yeah. no matter what we've done before. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think it, it's really understandable. I think that um, you know, when we get sober and look back and see clearly, when we take an inventory or just look at what what we've done, it's pretty natural to feel some shame and regret and guilt about that, and sort of. Uh, you know, wonder about how you can uh, really compensate for that in any way, but, but um, you know, I think that's largely just self-judgment. Um, I mean, there's, there, obviously a lot of us have wreckage, but, you know, we were doing something right as well. We tend to downplay our, our goodness, you know, just as much as we probably downplay our badness. I don't know. All depends. Yeah. So you may have talked about this, but I, I might have missed it. Um, it seems to me one of the um, concepts that's very clearly uh, foundational for. 12 steps, and I think also Buddhism, though I'm really new to Buddhist practice, is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wondered if you would speak a, a little bit about that. I'm not very good with gratitude. <laughs> I know. Uh, just um, 
No, I, I, I'm not very, I mean, I'm okay with having gratitude. Uh, it's hard, it's a hard one for me to talk about. And, and of course, um, the, um, I'm, you know, I've gotten a little uh, excessively uh, um, devoted to karma as a topic. And um, so that crowds out a little bit gratitude. Um, it can if you get very obsessive about it, and, you know, uh, uh, overly focused on it, as I think I have become. Um, but the, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the tradition, which is that... Um, we practice gratitude for the teachers, for our teachers, and our <coughs> teachers' teachers. And this part of my um, my, my practice is to um, you can do it at the end of a sitting, where you uh, or at the beginning of a sitting, actually. That's one of the ways it's recommended as a way to kind of evoke positive feelings. To contemplate uh, specifically your your Buddhist teachers, and then the teachers, their teachers, and then all those who have kept the teachings alive, and and then the Buddha and his his work. I mean, if you read the story of the Buddha and you know his lifetimes of sacrifice and commitment, it's just mind blowing. You know, to imagine that someone had actually lived like that. You know, once once he like, supposedly sacrificed himself to a a sick mother lion who wasn't able to feed her cubs, so he just threw himself off a cliff so that the to feed the the mother lion. You know, I mean, that's pretty serious devotion to your you know to generosity. <laughs> Maybe not the most wise way of using. But, um, so, uh, and, and, uh, um, and when I think about the fact that somehow over 2,500, almost 2,600 years now, these teachings have stayed alive through, you know, at one time, all of Buddhism was wiped out in India. That's why it's not really a religion in India. Because in the, Right around the time of the Crusades, when the Christians were invading the Middle East, there were Muslims who were invading India and just, and destroyed all the great monasteries. And um, so you realize that this stuff, uh, you know, could have easily been wiped out, um, but fortunately, it had already migrated to Sri Lanka. Um, the uh, the contemplation around karma though the positive the, the gratitude contemplation around karma is to realize that 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 um, life is so complex that there are so many different factors involved that that even though we might have a significant part in the way our own lives have unfolded many many other factors uh, are involved and uh, you know, the fact that Buddhism is available to us, the fact that the 12 steps are available to us, we just happen to arrive 
at this point in history when those two things were available and, and before you know this era this very brief modern era that wasn't true uh, you know um, and Buddhism just was the only existed in the separate countries it existed in the different countries the the Zen Buddhists didn't know about the Theravada Buddhists and the Theravadans didn't know about the Vajrayana so they were this is we're at this flowering moment in time now then there are some who say well we were incarnated now because we were you know uh, we were alive at the time of the Buddha but we didn't get it so we came back now to you know, to try to finish our work uh, but uh, was there something you wanted to ask me about <laughs> generosity <laughs> other than me just riffing on it Actually, I have another question, if you would uh, indulge me, and that's, um, it's really, uh, I have, um, I have a lot of trouble just sitting down yeah. to meditate, um, very restless, and there's a lot of chatter, and, um, you know, I was reflecting on this um, for, uh, you know, I'm on step two and a step study, and um, we're uh, writing about what uh, what are we arguing about, you know, within ourselves, and what's, you know, keeping us from, uh, you know, having the, you know, turning it over, having a faith, and um, I was looking at it as what's keeping me from practicing, um, you know, connecting, and mm -hmm. so anyway, I will do virtually anything to avoid sitting still, and um, would love. Um, any suggestions you might have to sort of help me get there, to just sit, sit down and sit still. So you're, don't turn it off yet. Okay. <laughs> so you're, when you say, so the, is, it, is it harder for you, well, so is there a discomfort when you sit down? The, you feel a restlessness when you sit, when you do sit down? To try to have you been trying to meditate? Yes, okay. and and there are periods of time when I can sit down for a, you know thirty minutes, forty five minutes, mm -hmm. but then I I move into a time where I notice that I am avoiding sitting down to do writing, and I'm at the same time I'm also avoiding my my sitting meditation, and I'm pretty much avoiding anything that involves quiet contemplation uh -huh. because. What comes up is, you know, a committee of chat, you know, a cacophony yeah. of, and, um, you know, uh, um, unpleasantness. Uh, have you been in recovery for a while, or two and a half years? Uh huh. And have you done an inventory, or are you working on an inventory? I have. I've been through that twice. Uh huh. But you so know, when you say you're writing, those are just sort of like a daily ten steps. Um, it's of part thing. of this step study that I'm doing every week. We write, you know, okay. we read part of the big book and and write on questions. And I find that every week I come back to my group and I'm sitting there like the kid in school do the doing homework. their homework, you know, on the day that it's oh, due, yeah, right. while everybody else is sharing their writing. I'm, you know, scribbling down my. Thoughts. I've been processing it for the whole week, but sitting down to write or sitting down to reflect and meditate is really challenging. Yeah. Well, there's certainly no tricks I can give you. Um, 
I think, you know, I try to schedule meditation into my day so that um, when it's that time, that's what I do. Just like when it's time to go to work or it's time to take a shower. It's just like it's scheduled in. Mm -hmm. So otherwise I'd be sitting there, well, well, i got 20 minutes to do nothing. So, you know, (laughs) um, that's a practical suggestion. Mm -hmm. Another suggestion uh, is that you commit yourself to sit on your cushion or your chair, your medit- do you have a, a place in your house? Or, okay, that you commit yourself to go there no matter what at some point in the day. Um, I mean, that's the external stuff. The internal is to stop and just, and whether you're standing, walking, seated, or lying down, <laughs> the four postures, that at that moment when you, it's like time to do that, that you just stop and see if you can feel the feeling that's uncomfortable. So go to that feeling because you have to see the suffering to move through the suffering until you see it clearly. In other words, you're doing your first step on it. You know, you're just you know, al- allowing yourself to feel the power of that, the energy of that in your body. And then when you feel it, Take a deep breath, relax, and see if you can just be very open to just allowing it to be there. Um, And that becomes your meditation, because that is your meditation. Your meditation isn't, oh, I feel restless, I need to meditate. It's, I feel restless. This is my meditation. Because whatever is happening, we're not meditating to get somewhere else. We're meditating to get here. And if that's what's here, arrive with it, be with it. That's the only way to move through it. And the only way to conquer it. Because as long as you don't, then there's always the fear, there's always you're coming up against it. You're like, I can't do that. that's, That's in the way. That's the dragon, you know. That that's you know keeping you out of you know heaven or whatever the image is you know that's the thing that's blocking you and as long as you go oh okay I can't get past that you're just building up that negative conditioning and the only way through it is to just go oh okay just let me die let me die into this you you just die into it just Die. die yes. Uh, I mean, in the way that the St. Francis prayer says, you know, it's by dying that we are born again into eternal life. You know, you just die into it, just like surrender to it. Okay, if restlessness is going to kill me, I will be the first person. Here she lies, you know, died of restlessness. The the autopsy will open up and it'll be like, all these words will come out. And they'll go, oh my God, no wonder she died. It's just, it's just too many words in there, you know. So, that's the practice. It's a killer. <laughs> what an order, I can't go through with it. So, um, before I close and before we end for the evening, I just want to mention um, a couple things. The Buddhist Recovery Network, which is an organization that I am part of. Um, 
and is just about a year old, year and a half old. Uh, we're going to have a conference in Los Angeles in October. We, um, what? A conference. Yes. Uh, that it's, let's hope not. I don't know. <laughs> um, and we are kind of trying to bring together people who are interested in this stuff. And there's a wide range that includes practitioners like you, uh, therapists, uh, researchers, um, and across the spectrum of 12-step programs of addictions. And uh, so it's going to be a pretty interesting conference. Um, we're going to have a brochure up pretty soon. Our website is just BuddhistRecovery.org. Uh, we also have .com, I think. Um, so if you're interested in this, it also lists on there meetings, like Buddhist 12-step meetings or groups that, are, that we know of. And there's quite a few of them around the country and around the world. Now, it's growing. So if you start a group, uh, you can contact the network and let us know. So there's that. Um, my website is kevingriffin.net, if you didn't know that. And I, keep, I try to keep my schedule updated on there if you're interested in practicing me, with me again. I always recommend to people that they, if they want to pursue meditation, that you go on a retreat. Um, Spirit Rock, as you know, those people who hang around here have lots of retreats. And Gil Fronsdale, the main teacher here, has lots of retreats. I also put on Buddhist 12-step retreats, and our next one will be in September at Vajrapani Institute, which is in Boulder Creek. Uh, that's on my website, uh, the link to the contact person. Uh, it's a four-day retreat, and what we do is we sit do sitting and walking meditation in the morning, and then we do like a workshop in the afternoon, and in the evening there's a talk, and then after that we end each day with a circle, a open 12-step meeting. Laura was just at the uh, seven-day retreat at Spirit Rock, and uh, would you like to give us a endorsement? <laughs> Don't do it. What? You know, the first day that I got there, I was scared to death. And uh, the last day, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. It was incredible. And especially the 12-step meetings were yeah. awesome to see all the different affiliates kind of come together. And we all really connected together, whether we understood that disorder or not. Yeah. So it was a great connection just within a week. Yeah. So. yeah, it was a beautiful retreat. So thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, glad you were there. So, um, you know, stay with me on this journey if you're interested. Uh, you know, it's, it's been an exciting one. And as I've talked about, next book will be out January next year. So um, buy multiple copies. How to pay back that advance. Um, but uh, I, I really just, again, just really enjoy coming to the center. I very much appreciate the volunteers, all your work and support. This is a strictly volunteer and Donna uh, slash donation uh, run center, which is just such a testament to the power of the Dharma and 
and the power of people's commitment to their spiritual growth. So, um, thank you for for these weeks together, and uh, stay sober, stay connected, keep coming back. Hmm? Yeah. So the talks, they what they do is they edit everything. Uh, just to make, tighten it up, and then uh, it goes up on the website, the IMC website, and so that'll probably be some weeks before they're all together. Um, I also, the talks from the retreat last week will be up on my website in the next uh, two days, probably tomorrow, I'll put I, I started load, uploading them today. So if you're interested in those, there were some good talks. You know, I, I don't think I have that up, but yeah, but I'll put I'll put it up there. Uh, that, uh, I've been meaning to do that. Yeah, I know it is. It's just one of those gaps in my web running. So um, you know, to close, uh, let's. We'll, I have a prayer that we do. We'll do the prayer we did at Spirit Rock. So let's make a circle, and I'll lead you in this prayer. It's a safe. Buddhist prayer. There's no mention of any supreme beings.